today on Ag News Daily. If you're in farming or ranching, there are pretty much two sets of rules you get to play by. Either uh, one set of rules for farming families and one farm set of rules for people who are not related to each other in farming. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is Wednesday, December 19th here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. My name is Delaney Howell, joined by my co-host Mike Pearson. And Mike, we are just days away from Christmas. Do you have your Christmas shopping done yet? Oh, of course I do. Of course oh, yeah? I do not have that done at mm, all. What a surprise. Yeah, well, Heidi's done quite a bit of shopping. I think she's got pretty much everybody taken care of. I oh. just need to take care of Heidi. Do you uh, need do you need me to give you some ideas for a Christmas present for me? Oh, nope. <laughs> oh, because you already have it picked out. Yeah. Is that why? Is that why? Nope. <laughs> oh, I'm actually sitting at my Chris or sitting staring at my Christmas tree right now, looking at all these presents that need to be wrapped, and I don't want to do any of it. Well, the wrapping is, you know. What what I've found is that Walmart sells bags of different sizes, <laughs> and for like twenty dollars in bags yeah, and you know. two dollars of tissue paper, boom, everything's wrapped in about thirty seconds. Well, that's true, but I've got a four year old nephew and a one year old niece, and they like to open presents. Like gift baskets or gift bags are boring; they want to open a present. Oh well, then just give them a gift bag full of crumpled up newspaper, and they'll get to tear <laughs> into it for hours. There you go. Yeah, I that, know. I honestly debated just, like, wrapping an empty box because my nephew just likes to open boxes with wrapping Yeah, exactly. Paper. You're not going to remember what you get for him at this age anyway. That's true. Oh, yeah, I know it's true. I got a <laughs> uh, four-year-old nephew. Yeah, that's He's true. getting boxes. <laughs> well, that's not very nice. You could put something in there. Put, like, I'll put another know, box in there that they can open. Put a candy cane in there. Nah. He'll be fine. You won't remember. That's true. Any of the trauma he'll suffer, you know, he'll deal with that with the psychiatrist that's when he's older, nice. his lack of trust issues. Great. Good job, Mike. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's that's their parents' problem. Okay. I'm the uncle. Good thing you don't have kids to, you know, <laughs> destroy, well, possess, whatever. Enough jibber-jabber, Delaney Howell. Yes. What's the news? Well, yesterday, as we reported, we saw an unknown... Um, shipment of soybeans heading to China or another purchase of sh- of soybeans heading to China. And we the, US, the USDA announced this morning that that sale was 1.199 million tons of U.S. soybeans, which is the third announcement in the past seven days here that we've seen China buy some soybeans. Yeah, you know, if my math is correct, they're up to, what, three and a half-ish mm, million metric so. tons? Yep. You know, like Ted said, the market is anticipating nine. We need to get to 15 to see any kind of a bullish spike. Right. If they're going to be doing more than offering that olive branch, they got to step up these purchases, it sounds like. Yeah, because usually, so China can crush or usually crushes about 8 million tons of soybeans per month. And I think like kind of in the height of soybean buying season, they're usually getting like 6 million bushels from the U.S. So... You know, I guess we're halfway there for a month's worth, but we really need to see that increase to make any reasonable dent. Absolutely. It needs to be more than just an average year. Yeah. And we've also been told that this, the crush margin in China is at a mm-hmm. record low. So there's not a lot of incentive for the independent private 
soybean buyers to jump into the U.S. market, especially since that tariff is still in place on yeah, American beans. That's right. However, we did hear news coming out yesterday. The Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin told Bloomberg that the Trump administration is scheduling face-to-face trade discussions with Chinese officials in the beginning of January to try and make the most of that 90-day negotiating window. So maybe that, and hopefully that's one of the things they discuss is, hey, why don't we take in these tariffs off of U.S. soybeans and other ag products? Yeah, yeah. Get to step in, USTR. Let's get this thing done. If you're going to do a trade deal, let's wrap it up. Let's get beans at least back to where they were a year ago. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, speaking of things being not quite back to where they were a year ago, the Federal Reserve announced today they are raising interest rates. They raised it a quarter of a point, was entirely expected by the market. However, there were comments made by uh, Jerome Powell, the head of the Fed, that they might be getting close to ending their interest rate hiking cycle. Basically, they're looking at the market volatility and slowing global growth and saying, you know, there's probably going to be some further gradual rate hikes needed. But before he'd said there will be gradual rate hikes needed. So Fed watchers are saying this indicates maybe we'll see fewer in 2019. All right. Well, we're waiting still to see what happens with the farm bill, seeing if President Trump signs that later this week. But I did have a good bit of good news here for dairy producers. I know we've got some that listen to the podcast. And as part of our 2018 farm bill, we currently are sitting with the Margin Protection Program, but this new farm bill is going to put a new program into place called the Dairy Margin Coverage Program. So for farmers who paid into the, the Margin Protection Program, those MPP payments, between the years of 2014 and 2017, you folks will be eligible for either a 50% refund or a 75% credit toward a new dairy insurance program. And so under the new established program in this new farm bill, the dairy margin coverage, it's going to basically help level the playing field for smaller farmers. Those farmers with multi-year policies will be eligible for discounts through the DMC program, which will also reduce overall premium rates for the previous program. And the program will also expand the insurable margin from the previous $8 maximum to now they're going to raise it to $9.50. All right, so perhaps a little bit of a refund and a little bit more coverage there coming through MPP. It sounds like it. And it's not going to be MPP anymore. It's going to be DMC. DMC, dairy margin coverage. All right, that'll, yeah. be, that'll be tough to get used to I know, saying. But I know, I agree. We can make the adjustment. We can. We're grown-ups. Yes. We can handle this. We can. Speaking of grown-ups, there are, of course, none in Washington, D.C., which is why they have proposed a temporary stopgap funding measure. It seems as though both parties want to avert a government shutdown, which we've talked about. It would shut down FSA. It would shut Mm -hmm. down the payments for the market facilitation program. But uh, they can't come to an agreement on a large-scale spending bill. So uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said he is going to move a stopgap measure into place that would, uh, if it's you know passed by Congress and signed into law by the president, it would prevent a shutdown until February 8th. So it would give them mm-hmm. another, basically a month of work days to get things so you know, agreed when do, to or cooperated upon. When do the new um, Congress members step in? 
the 20th of January. Is that okay. right? Something like I don't that. Know. Okay, so they've still got a That's little bit of time. The presidential inauguration is yeah, always right around right. the 20th. Okay. Okay, so they might mid, have a mid, little bit of time. January. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure they'll keep, you know, talking about things throughout break mm-hmm. and trying to come to some kind of a negotiation. But at least it sounds like it sounds like this has legs and it's not going to we're probably not going to have a government shutdown on Saturday. OK, well, that's good, at least. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you got to try to find the positive in it, Mike. Just kicking that can farther down the I road. Is that is happening. true. That is true. Well, the end of 2018 is right around the corner. A lot of folks will be shut down in D.C. A lot of folks across the ag industry that work in, a per- in uh, I guess, agribusiness and media will be shut down. And we're starting to see some annual reports come out from USDA, EPA, etc. I think I reported yesterday about the drop in antibiotic usage. We've also seen pesticide usage drop more than half in the in uh, fruits and vegetable production. And the other thing I thought was interesting here was beef and exports for the year of 2018 have consumed 14.9 million tons of corns and of corn and DDGs for this year, which is a 29% increase from 2015 and the US Meat Export Federation is is uh, counting a lot of that to the rise in shipments of red meat we've seen over the past two years, really, three years here. Uh, 11% of this corn, 11% of the price of corn this year will be derived from red meat exports. Or to put it another way, beef and pork will account for 39 cents per bushel of the price of corn based on the annual average price of 3.53 per bushel. There you go. Beef. It's what's for dinner, and corn is what beef is eating for dinner, and it's helping drive demand. It also helps that uh, the beef herd has been growing, and we've been yep. seeing more and more cattle going on feed. And we've got the cattle on feed coming out tomorrow, excuse me, tomorrow a day early here uh, in light of the Christmas shutdown. Well, are they taking Friday off in D.C.? I don't know. I, I just know they're doing the cattle on feed report earlier. Huh, last I checked, Friday wasn't a holiday, Washington. Well, it's not, but maybe some people are taking off. You know, yeah, some people are taking it off. Sometimes people in Washington just grant all sorts of takeoffs for different things. We got a report today from Reuters that another company received small refinery exemption from the RFS requirements Mm. earlier this year. Did you see which company it was, Delaney? I didn't. This is this is a very it's a sad story about a simple ma and pa company barely able to make ends meet. It was Exxon, Exxon mm, Mobil yeah. received an exemption, a small refinery exemption from the RFS. This is more fodder for Farm Belt uh, senators and, and House of Representative members to say, hey, look, EPA was just handing these things out like candy. There is no way Exxon should have qualified for a small refinery exemption since they are not necessarily a small refiner, the largest in the world, in fact, I believe they are. And uh, we should see this coming to a head once Congress and government gets back into the full flow of things during the first of the year. Hmm. Yeah, Exxon doesn't strike me as a uh, needing a hardship waiver. No, no, it's 
uh, it'd be interesting to see what their justifications were for that. Mm-hmm. It would be. Do some digging. I doubt we could get our hands on anything like that, but you never we know. We can try, though, Delaney. We could try. We could. Well, I am out of news for today. Kind of a slower news day here as things are wrapping up policy-wise. Mike, do you have any other news, or should we hop over into the markets? I am out of news, Delaney. I'm going to jump into the markets before we jump over to our conversation with Josh Sewell, looking at the parts of the Farm Bill that might not be as beneficial as... uh a lot of folks have been cheerleading for getting the farm bill passed. So let's tear into the markets here. And it was a down day in the grains. Our markets are brought to us, of course, by our good friends at the Zaner Group. Remember, you can get in touch with the folks at Zaner anytime. Use their brains to help you manage your risk more efficiently. Give them a shout at 312-277-0050 or visit them on the web at zaner.com. In the corn market, the March contract down three and three quarter cents at three eighty one and three quarters. The May also down three and a quarters to close the day at three eighty nine and three quarters. In soybeans, the January contract dropped seven and three quarter cents on the day to close at nine dollars even. The March down seven and three quarters as well to finish at nine thirteen even. In Chicago wheat, the March contract down ten and a quarter cents, closed at five twenty two and a half. The May down nine and a half cents to finish at five twenty nine and three quarters. Looking over to the world of livestock, weakness in the cattle complex today, December live cattle. Let's jump down to February. December is quick trading. February live cattle down 32.5 cents at 122.250. The April down 2.5 cents to close at 124.5750. In feeder cattle, January was unchanged on the day at 146.20, while the March was down 2.5 cents to close at 144.2750. And in lean hogs, the February contract up a nickel on the day at 62.70. The April also up a nickel, finished at 67.8750. And of course, a quick look at the dairy market. In class three milk, the December contract dropped four cents at thirteen eighty one, while January was down eleven to finish at fourteen twenty. Without further ado, here's Josh Sewell from Taxpayers for Common Sense. Well, folks, today we are looking at the Farm Bill from a slightly different perspective. My guest is Josh Sewell. He's a senior policy analyst at Taxpayers for Common Sense. And Josh, thanks for taking the time to chat with me. Hey, thanks for having me on. Now, there has been a, a lot of cheerleading over the passage of the Farm Bill here. It's excitement that we were able to get it done without an extension of the previous bill, excitement that perhaps it was just nice to see Congress come together and get something done. But you're not exactly thrilled with this new Farm Bill. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. Um, you, from our perspective, you know, we only get a chance at a Farm Bill about once every five years, and so we want to make sure – now that we have this focus on agricultural policy, that we that we get it right, and that we don't think we got uh, it all right in this bill. What, in your mind, was the most egregious uh, example in the farm bill here of of things could have gone one way and instead they went the other? I think the biggest uh, missed opportunity in this farm bill for us would be to some of the efforts in the Senate um, to really focus payment limits and the safety net supports on people who we know are actually farming. Um, and I say that simply because uh, Mr. Grassley um, had in the Senate bill secured uh, an amendment that would have um, ensured that anyone who is actually still farming and ranching um, could get uh, payments. Potentially, they would be part of the safety net. But it would really narrow and uh, cut out some people who, some of the bad actors who we know are, are simply farming the folk, 
farming the programs and not actually um, in the nitty-gritty of farming. Now, let's go into detail a little bit more on this because I, I'm not exactly familiar with how this operates. Basically, I can sign up members of my family if I'm a farmer, and it can be an unlimited number of family members who are then, quote, managers on the farm. Is that correct? Uh, that's pretty much how it works. So if you're in farming or ranching, there are pretty much two sets of rules you get to play by either uh, one set of rules for farming families and one farm set of rules for people who are not related to each other in farming. So that in and of itself, um, from our perspective, um, is a problem because whether you're a family farmer or you're 15 people who just like each other and get together and want to get into agriculture, we think Washington should treat everybody equally. The, the exception here is that under the family farming loophole, anybody who is actually working on that farm um, can potentially be, um, can receive subsidies under the Title I programs um, and some of the disaster programs. However, there's this wide loophole that allows people who aren't actually living or working on the farm to qualify through what's called active management. And every farm needs management. That's obvious. And not everything you, you do on a farm has to be done on the farm, you know, selling your crops, marketing your crops, you figuring out what you're going to plant. However, this it's so vague what is required in management that there are some operations that have literally dozens of people who are qualifying as managers. And no matter how large you are, um, it, it doesn't you can find 25 family members. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and so it just we know that there are not everybody is abusing this loophole, but there, there are people who abuse it, and that's who we were trying, um, and not just us at Taxpayers for Common Sense, but again, Senator Grassley from Iowa and many other folks have supported this effort to just, again, it's really ensuring that, we've, that we have farm programs that are focused on actual farmers, you know, not necessarily just people who are invested in a farm. Yeah, and another comment that I know you've made in the press is that one of the other things this farm bill did was it raised the AGI, the Adjusted Gross Income Limit, for eligibility into farm programs. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what it means in practice for taxpayers? Yeah, so what this bill did also in the Senate bill, uh, as the, the version that passed the Senate, actually reduced the Adjusted Gross Income Limit from $900,000 per individual down to 700000 And what that means is, under current law, if you make $900,001 after you deduct all your costs for doing business, you no longer qualify for taxpayer subsidies, uh, income subsidies in Title I programs. If you make $899,999, you do. And so there aren't a lot of operations that make $900,000 in what is effectively profit every year, but there are some. And, again, in a safety net that's supposed to help farming and ranching businesses, and especially families, uh, we think that uh, it, it would make sense to really ratchet down that means test to a lower level. And it's something that Congress has been doing for the last 30 years. We've been, uh, they have been really every farm bill taking, a, taking another stab at narrowing the programs to focus on farmers and to cut off some of the folks who are farming the programs. And then also to really narrow, to, to focus it down on the folks who actually need the safety net as opposed to uh, my just, um, again, if you're making $900,000, odds are you're, you're doing pretty well. Now, one of the arguments I heard when this means test was being discussed here about a year ago was that if we tighten the AGI limits too much, one of the things is that producers would be uh, forced out of 
um, subsidized crop insurance. Of course, if you make more than 900 grand, you don't get the, the subsidy when you're purchasing crop insurance, and that would skew the risk profile for crop insurance purchases. And that seems to my non-mathematician brain to make some sense. Is that something that we should be concerned about if the AGI limits do get tightened down in future farm bills, or is that just a red herring? I think if you ratchet down AGI limits, now, now one point of clarification is the current AGI only applies to um, commodity supports in Title I. So crop insurance, which is through Title XI of the Farm Bill, actually does, you can have an unlimited amount of income and you still qualify for the subsidies. Gotcha. There were efforts to apply those AGI limits to crop insurance, uh, and that did not make it into uh, the final version of the bill. Um, I think it's a bit of a red herring simply because there's, it's still, again, if you make 900, if you're getting $900,000 um, of effectively profit, um, you can manage your own risk on your, on your own. Um, and folks who are making 750000 or 500000 are still oftentimes not um, terribly risky businesses. And so I think it's going to be a small number of, of folks who would leave the risk pool. Um, and then also, <laughs> we, um, one of the compromises was to say, okay, you don't eliminate your subsidies, you just have a reduction in the subsidies. And so what Senator Durbin from Illinois, uh, and actually Grassley got on this as well, his um, amendment to the Senate bill would have said, if you have an AGI over uh, whatever the, the limit is in Title I, then your crop insurance subsidies are simply reduced 15%. So you could be getting, and we do know of at least um, – a few operations when EWG, uh, the Environmental Working Group, was able to get some of the data um, in on who, on the type of operations that were getting crop insurance subsidies. There were at least 20, I believe it was, that were had more than one million dollars in, in crop insurance premium subsidies. So, if you were getting a million dollars and you reduce that by 15 percent, you're still going to get 850 thousand dollars in premium subsidy. Right. So, <laughs> we think it's still it's still very generous, um, but again, it does continue this progress of really narrowing the programs to focus on the, on the neediest um, producers and to have the and have the programs really be more of a safety net and not something that guarantees uh, subsidies every year. Now, one of the things you wrote about that really struck me as interesting is that this farm bill opens up the opportunity for rocks to become an agricultural commodity. Can you go into a little bit of detail of what's going on with that? Absolutely. So this is a little pet peeve of mine, um, and I think it is for many other folks, especially um, conservatives, is having the federal government really get involved in not just the day-to-day operations of, of businesses, but also in, in really deep into picking winners and losers amongst commodities. So there is a provision in this, in this bill towards the end uh, that says it directs the USDA to study the feasibility of creating a commodity checkoff program, essentially, for natural stone. Um, again, it, don't think of stone as an agricultural commodity. I mean, no. maybe an inconvenience for a lot of farmers. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah it's uh, something we pull out of the field and dump in the fence row. Exactly. You know, and but what this is is essentially you have um, an industry that is going that the natural stone industry, which there's plenty of uses for natural stone. Um, what they would like to have is a checkoff program similar to the beef checkoff or the or the pork checkoff, um, and which requires anyone who's in that business to pay 
money every year uh, to pool their money and then do marketing programs. You know, mm-hmm. they could be could be advertisement, it could be trade shows, but it's government forcing new people to pay money into um, into an advertising campaign that they may or may not support. So many people, myself included, have an ideological um, opposition to checkoff programs, but also it comes to a practical um, and First Amendment debate. We would argue, um, but then also again, it's 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 not an agricultural commodity, so I don't think it should be in the farm bill. And another interesting point is the 2014 farm bill, at least in the House, actually did not have a study. It had a requirement that the natural stone have a marketing order and a checkoff program. How would and that it even was work? From For every rock <laughs> I pull out of the ground, i got to pay a buck type of deal? That's a very good question. I, I, I haven't seen the details on, but maybe this study will tell us exactly how you can figure it out. But it actually got stripped out of the House bill uh, only by about two votes. So, you know, one thing you, you, you learn working in Washington is um, if you lose, um, you get a study. And so in some respects, this shows that they it, they learned from their loss in 2014, but now we'll have a have a report on whether or not this is feasible. So hopefully common sense prevails. Yeah, yeah, that one just struck me as, as a little odd to be slipping into the farm bill, but I suppose a piece of legislation that's 807 pages long, you can slip a lot into there and, and exactly. make it right by people. Now, a yeah, lot you of can what, find all kinds of little parochial nuggets in this bill. Right. It takes a lot. If, if Congress is going to vote overwhelmingly in favor of something, there's a pretty good chance that overwhelmingly everybody got their cut, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a good assumption. Now, we've been talking quite a bit about the farm programs and the, the titles that relate to production agriculture. Are there any missed opportunities when we look at the nutrition side of the ledger for the farm bill? Yeah, I'd say there are. Um, you know, this this bill continues business as usual for the most part um, in the nutrition titles, and I think there would be people on both sides of the aisle who would who would say it was a missed opportunity. Some conservatives who would want to really narrow the program again and ensure we're this what is essentially now a seventy to eighty billion dollar a year program um, is actually focusing on the people it needs to focus on. And then I think many of our, our progressive and liberal friends would want that same conversation. I think this last farm bill, while there's a lot of focus in the House on nutrition title reform, there wasn't really a, a back-and-forth debate about the details of what eventually got into the House bill. And that's mainly the creation of a um, – again, this did not survive into the, the final bill, but the, the House had pushed a – to create a – to greatly expand a – job training program within the USDA, something that uh, the USDA has not done in the past but would um, essentially get 10 to 20 times as much money um, mm-hmm. as a pilot project in the past. And so, uh, But that wasn't really discussed. There were lots of other oversight hearings into various parts of nutrition uh, programs, but pretty much the, the program is how it was um, before. And, and I think a big concern with that is, is again, there may be, there may actually be some folks who are slipping through the cracks, uh, but then there are also some bad actors and um, who don't necessarily need the assistance in the nutrition programs. And so we think all of Congress should have a have a factual debate and really talk about what we can afford, because you know if presumably one day we will go back in recession and the nutrition title will start to get really expensive again, and we need to make sure that we that the nutrition safety net, just like the, the agricultural income safety net is there for the people who need it 
uh, and not for, for necessarily people who don't. That's true. Now, Josh, it sounds as though this farm bill is all but done. We're still waiting on President Trump's signature. Given that all of this is basically in place, it's locked in for the next five years, what do you propose as we head towards, believe it or not, the 2020 presidential election is kicking off and another round of Senate and House elections? What can be done in the interim if there is some wasteful spending or some missed opportunities? Is there any way to patch uh, the farm bill? Yeah, it's never too late. Um, and um, you know, there's always another bite of the apple. Um, and I think... The, one of the other real missed opportunities that we are going to have to engage on, whether you want to or not, is that uh, we still don't have the predictability and stability we need in agriculture because we're in the midst of a, of a tariff-centric trade war. And there's no segment of our economy that is more affected by this uh, increase in both our own tariffs here in the United States, but then especially the, the retaliatory tariffs that foreign countries have imposed on us um, there just there's no sector that has seen the loss of income and the loss of markets um, like agriculture, and so you know we assume the president will sign this bill. And you, you never know with Trump. That's one of the things I do like about him is that he keeps us all on our toes here in Washington. <laughs> um, but you know, presuming he does sign this, then the very next day we still have to engage in, in figuring out how to how to end this trade war because this bill doesn't eliminate one single tariff and it doesn't open one single market that's been closed to our agricultural producers. And so that's what we really, we already are, but we also will work with Congress more to really find a legislative solution to getting to better trade deals. Because the president is right that we do need better trade deals. And I think many agricultural producers uh, are hungry to get into new markets uh, and to play on an even playing field. But tariffs just aren't, aren't a tool that's going to do it, and it creates too much damage on the way because um, again we don't have any trade deals signed yet there might be nafta 2.0 might get through congress next year it's not a given um and so we still have these tariffs in place and so it's that's something i think both sides of the aisle can come together and really figure out um what can we do to to really exert congressional influence and and bring the experience of the constituencies throughout the country um, of how this trade war is not um, being done in a way that's we'll say is, is efficient. Right. There are other ways that could accomplish the goals with perhaps less harm to uh, bystanders. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and that's exactly. And we're just really concerned too because you know the way the government works when when there's no government problem that doesn't have a government solution, and we're seeing that with the uh, MPP payments, these the, the trade aid. Um, the revival of direct payments to certain producers who've lost markets, yeah. um, who lost exports. But again, that's really complicated to figure out why. We, obviously, a lot of soybean producers have lost um, money uh, because of an inability to export. But then there are other people who haven't even been able to. Why would you, especially down in Louisiana, why would you even harvest your soybeans? Because you, you can't send them anywhere. Right. Um, no one will take them. And so, but technically, those folks aren't couldn't get an MPP payment because the bureaucrats have decided the payments are based on how much you've harvested. So if you never harvest, you technically can't get a payment. So it just spirals into these. Um, it just gets really complicated. Right. It's more picking winners and losers from Washington, exactly. D.C. Exactly. Well, Josh Sewell from Taxpayers for Common Sense, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. 
Again, I really appreciate it. I hope to do this more. Well, Delaney, every time we get something through Congress, of course, there are winners and losers. There are good things and bad things in all of that legislation. Sometimes it's nice to take a look at some of the bad aspects of it as well as the good. Well, maybe not. It's not a good thing to look at them, but I think it's just a good idea to make sure you know the full picture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're paying taxes, your dollars are going to to do all this stuff. So you might as well know what they're going to do. Absolutely. Absolutely, Mike. Well, if folks want to connect with us on social media, the Internet, etc., shoot us a note. Where can they do that? They can do it on our social media pages are at Ag News Daily on Facebook and on Twitter. They can check in with our parent company, the Global Ag Network, home to fantastic ag podcasts from around the country. They can do that. Just search for Global Ag Network, or they can visit our website at agnewsdaily.com, and they will get redirected right to our new home. It's a slick deal. Check us out on the Internet. And with that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.